good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with one of Chicago's most exciting filmmakers. I'll talk to Jennifer Reeder about her new movie, Perpetrator. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new musical parody of Murder, She Wrote. Plus, we'll update some new theater venues that are under development. And later, I'll check in with the programming director at the Siskel Film Center to talk about the history of censorship at the cinema. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. A young woman gifted with unique powers does more than survive as she encounters an increasingly dangerous environment in the new film Perpetrator. Jean Quill, or Johnny as she likes to be called, isn't interested in compromising when it comes to fighting back against the nefarious forces working against the young women in her orbit. Filmmaker Jennifer Reeder says there's a lot of herself in Johnny. Reeder wrote and directed the new feature-length film, which is currently playing at the Music Box Theater. The award-winning director is among the most exciting filmmakers working in Chicago, and Perpetrator will make even the most grizzled horror fan a little squeamish with its eerie aesthetics, which include copious amounts of blood. How about some blood cake? The film features a number of familiar faces, many from Chicago's theater community, and a standout performance from Alicia Silverstone, who plays the mysterious great-aunt of Johnny. I recently caught up with Reader to talk about Perpetrator. So I'm always interested in project inspiration. What was the, the starting point for the idea that turned into Perpetrator? I did a film called Knives and Skin that came out in 2019. And, uh, you know, I was getting a lot of questions after, you know, touring around with Knives and Skin about my experience working with so many um, teenagers, specifically teenage girls. And I realized after about the 10th time that I got asked that question, that the assumption was that it was a nightmare, you know, and that for me, walking on set with, with, you know, 22 teenage girls in front of my camera was pretty dreamy. That's why I keep making films about young girls. But for other people that, you know, walking into a room with 22, 14 year olds was, you know, was a nightmare. And so I, I really, it really, you know, I thought I, I need to tell a more definitive story about the way that we are a culture obsessed with youth and beauty, especially among, you know, young women. And yet we're kind of terrified of them or at the very least, or we really hate them and try to kind of disrupt their evolution at worst. And I thought about the way that we talk about young women who have a kind of um, agency over their independence. Uh, you know, we, we use phrases like wild and out of control. And that phrase is not meant to celebrate their independence. It's really meant to diminish them. So I thought, wow, okay, let's make a, I'm gonna make a story about a a wild and out of control girl who really becomes wild and out of control, which is the kind of start of any, you know, shapeshifter story. And very cool. You know, so I started thinking about that and, and I started get kind of going back to some kind of classic shapeshifter stories that weren't about vampires or werewolves. And I rewatched the eighties iteration of cat people, which is a pretty weird film. Honestly, you know, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to make, you know, a real kind of genre bending, nuanced uh, coming of age 
shapeshifter story about a, a girl who inherits, you know, kind of turbocharged um, empathy as a as both a curse and a and a, a superpower. And you know, fast forward to a perpetrator. Right, right. So the that central character Donnie. Did you have like a specific evolution in mind early on? No, I didn't. I mean, that was honestly, I mean, that's the, that's the biggest part of the, that's kind of the biggest plot point or the biggest kind of, well, it's not the biggest reveal or there's other reveals, you know, later on, but you know, that there was still through the writing process, oftentimes this big hole, like, okay, what is she going to become? You know, like I really had already decided that she, I didn't want her to be like I said, a vampire or a werewolf, but it took me a while. I already, I had already started writing the script and I knew how it started and we, I would get, and I knew how it ended. So I would get up to her 18th birthday and was like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening to her on her 18th birthday. And, you know, then it was a combination of, of thinking not about the film, but thinking about just violence in America in general and empathy and how, you know, if we were just, you know, as a, as collectively more empathetic, you know, that maybe this would be a better place to raise children. And I, and I also had watched, I was rewatching a bunch of old um, Twilight Zone episodes. And there was, there was one about a guy who, depending on like the, the angle that his hat was at, or, or what kind of light was shining on him, you know, he could look like a very different person. And of course, like in that Twilight Zone, it was different actors playing that person. But, you know, I thought, oh, wow, you know, some people want to be invisible, but I would absolutely want to walk into a room and not, you know, be unrecognizable, be a different person. So really it was like, oh, okay super empathy to the point where she could look like someone else and she can, you know, really absorb someone else's kind of emotions and um, kind of emotional energy and use it kind of back, back on them or use it to make herself kind of uh, stronger, for instance, physically, you know, and that's a pretty weird idea, you know, I, or I, in the sense that it's not one that, that could just be easily explained because we've seen that happen in other films or because that actually happens to people in real life, even though there are people who consider themselves empaths in the same way that there are people who are clairvoyant or psychic or telepathic, et cetera. And so it took a lot, it was a lot of kind of writing and revising and writing and revising and testing things out and making other people read the script to, to um, and, 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 and doing some visual tests to figure out how, you know, it would physically look what what actually was happening to her on the night of her trans our transition, how Hildy would explain it to her, how how it would manifest later on in the film. And and man, going into production, I was like, I hope this works because <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, because it's a little weird. But you know, I I I I think you know, this is not a film that everyone will will love or 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 be engaged with. And that's completely fine with me, you know, but I think it will find it's um I think it will find new fans and I think um, it'll find new super fans. And I think that the that the old fans of my work will really feel like it's an evolution of what I've done previously. So I did want to kind of dive in deeper as far as that supernatural element, that power. So you call it uh, forevering. It's more than just a physical appearance change. It's also the ability to embody those feelings and thoughts. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like a possession in reverse. You know, the people, like I mentioned, who consider themselves empaths have a sense they feel like they they really can feel what someone else is feeling. I mean, I would say that like a, a film that comes close to or like is a, is a really good comparable that I watched over and over and over again is Scanners, David Cronenberg's 
scanners, you know, and that, you know, in that there are people who, who can kind of connect to the other person sort of psychically. I mean, you know, there's the famous head exploding um, in that, in that film. And so it's not as though I'm the first person to have ever explored that level of, of sort of empathy that, that allows you to really kind of your sort of psychological energy to, to kind of grasp, you know, someone else's energy in a way that can um, have a have a physical effect. Of course, like the film ends before we really see what what she can do. She's just at the beginning. It's like she's a new, a, a, you know, a newborn pony, you know, just kind of trying to stand on wobbly legs. And so, you know, the film ends when 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 we know that she's just, you know, she's got so much potential ahead of her. And I didn't do that, you know, to set myself up for a sequel by any means. You know, I just really wanted the film to end you know, where an audience is excited, you know, for her next step, even though they don't know what that will be. Chicago native Kia McKiernan plays Johnny. She's the central character the the film revolves around. What were you looking for when you were casting that role? So I always knew that, you know, I wanted to cast um, a young woman of color. It was was part of the sort of storyline in terms of her parents and her kind of lineage. And but I also knew that I had to cast um, an actor who who had the ability to be both kind of tough and penetrable and also like really vulnerable. And I and I wanted to cast somebody who was before she even spoke was kind of, you know, captivating in front of the camera. And I had seen Kaya McKiernan who happens to be a Chicago native. I happened to see her um, in a small but memorable part in uh, Mayor of Easttown. And before we even, you know, we, we had even started, you know, seriously casting, you know, I was really happy then when the, the initial list for Johnny's, you know, came across my desk that she was on there. And so when I spoke to her, you know, over a kind of a Zoom interview, you know, she had already read the script and she just said, you know, as a... As a queer woman of color and a multiracial woman, you know, I really understand who Johnny is. I really have a sense of who she is and, and her transitions, you know, it's, it, it is, it's, it's meaningful to me as an actual, you know, human. And none of the other young actors who I had spoken to had said something that, that made me feel like they were really profoundly ready to kind of sew themselves into the, into Johnny's skin. And I knew that Kaya would be the person who, you know, I mean, she's in every scene. She was on set every single day of shooting. You know, if you can't call, you can't phone that in, you know. The great Alicia Silverstone is in the the film. I think I read somewhere that he wrote her a letter. Did you have her in mind for the Hildy role early on? I did. I absolutely had her in mind. I mean, I, you know, sometimes I like to be able to cast in with these kind of a backstory, you know, and I, and I really love the idea of casting, you know, like Cher Horowitz as our, you know, the matriarch of of a shape-shifting family, you know, I mean, Alicia was introduced to us as this iconic teenager. She's grown up in front of us through all of her films. And so I thought it would be the meta-ness of her being the matriarchy to, to another kind of iconic teenager um, or the, the the mentor to another kind of iconic teenager. You know, I just thought that might be a really interesting and unexpected fit. Um, and I had seen her in Killing of a Sacred Deer and the Lodge. And so I knew that she was making moves in the genre world. And I wrote her a letter to try to get her to read the script. Her team had already read the script and liked it for her, which was great. Um, and then I wrote her um, a letter that sort of said this exact thing, you know, that said, you know, about how I I thought it would be just this really interesting meta moment of, of being able to kind of pull her own provenance as an actor kind of into the into the film. And, and then I told her that I wanted to pattern 
Hildy, style Hildy after um, the Catherine Deneuve character in The Hunger, this beautiful film from 1983 with David Bowie, where Catherine Deneuve plays this kind of immortal woman with these this very kind of structured hair and these great outfits. And so I had her watch that. And then I also had her watch Marnie and Vertigo. I mean, I liked also the idea that Hildy could be this kind of cool Hitchcockian blonde. And she just became obsessed. I, you know, she sent herself down that kind of Deneuve rabbit hole and the kind of, you know, cool Hitchcockian blonde rabbit hole and, and really liked the idea that I would style her in a way that was also unexpected. And, you know, she has, a she changed the cadence of her voice and she lowered the, her register. I mean, she really wanted to set Hildy apart from every single other part that she's other role that she's played up to then. Chicago area viewers might recognize some of the settings featured in the film. Perpetrator was filmed entirely in the Chicago area. Well, you know, obviously we had to have a high school, but we were shooting during the school year. So that was sort of out of the question. So we actually ended up at sh- shooting at one of the, the park district field houses. They have a gym, they have classrooms. I mean, I, and they, they're vintage, they're properly vintage. They look like a high school. And I was like, yeah, no brainer. And they were, that was great. We were looking for a cemetery and I wanted a very particular, like I wanted a giant, very old cemetery. So we ended up shooting on the north side of Bohemian, which is a beautiful, beautiful cemetery. I say that with not all the crew loved shooting in a cemetery, but I I loved it. And we had to have, I will just say like the perpetrator's lair, so to say, you know, which I wanted to feel unexpected. You know, I mean, there's plenty of, there's plenty of films with like torture chambers in them that all kind of look the same. And I wanted ours to look distinctly, I mean, terrifying, but distinctly (laughs) different. And we actually shot that that location was in the basement of um, a Spanish-speaking bookstore in Pilsen. Oh, nice. <laughs> we were like, you know, we were all over the place. We were sort of north side. We were um, in Pilsen. We shot some other stuff kind of out um, in the suburbs, some of the houses. And, and then we shot Hildy's apartment is in Ukrainian village. And so to be able to shoot in March of 2022 in Ukrainian village also just felt I don't know. It felt actually really special. And and in the opening scene, you can see in the background, there's a Ukrainian flag. So there's even sort of this film will, will endure, but there's a nice little endorsement for the people of Ukraine, you know, in this film as well. But that's but, but that also feels distinctly Chicago to me. Right. So that would have been like a month after the invasion. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I really enjoyed the, the film. It uh, sufficiently creeped me out. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, you as well. Thanks. Let's do it again when the next one comes out, whenever that is. For sure. That's Jennifer Reeder. Her new film, Perpetrator, is playing at the Music Box Theater through August 31st. It'll then be available to stream on the horror platform Shudder starting September 1st. You can find more info at Shudder.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Growing up, if I was at my grandparents' house on a Sunday evening, one thing was for sure. Channel 2 was on for Murder, She Wrote. Some of you listening might remember this song. Helena Handbag Production is presenting an all-new musical parody of the massively popular murder mystery series, Murder Rewrote. 
and it continues at the Den Theater through September 16th. In this production, it isn't Jessica Fletcher, but rather Bessica Felcher is the one trying to solve a murder that's taking place in the Hamptons. And Carrie, we'll start with you. Did I read that they actually even do a parody of the opening credits? Yes, they do. And there's recreations of commercials that might be familiar to anybody who did watch the show during that time. <laughs> um, I think fair to say commercials that maybe appeal to the older demographic. <laughs> and in a, what they're you know, sort of referencing as a uh, mystery of Edwin Drood twist, there is an audience participation portion at the end where you get to decide who the murderer is. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, this is set up like a typical murder-she-wrote mystery, but it's also combining with a lot of the things that Helena Handbag has done so very often in the past and so well, primarily bringing in artistic director David Serta as Joan Crawford. I'm sorry, June Crayfish, <laughs> who is a movie star. I'm sorry, former movie star, according to her <laughs> jealous, spiteful daughter, Christina. Uh, it's Christina who, no spoiler, uh, spoiler alert, but not really, ends up dead in the in the uh, the palatial crayfish mansion where Bessica's nephew, the, the somewhat hapless Grady, has been working as an accountant. So Bessica has been brought into the circle. Christina ends up dead. Is it her uh, is it her, her adoptive mother, <laughs> June? Is it the truculent maid Helga? Is it the put upon housekeeper? Uh, Carol Ann, is it Grady? Could it be Bessica herself? We don't know. Uh, it, it's a very, I won't say, I, I think we can say depth takes a holiday here, but it is an absolutely, to my mind, super fun, very silly, naughty, but not too, you know, not, not too gauche. I mean, it is gauche, but not puerile, to use uh, Jonathan's phrase from a show a few weeks ago. <laughs> and if it is puerile, it's always in service of the underlying story. I think one of the things I love about Helena Handbag, Jonathan, you and I have discussed their work several times, particularly their Golden Girls, you know, ongoing series, the Golden Girls Lost episodes. There is such great affection for the for the source material, and I think that's what drives this as well. I had a, I had a hoot. It's just a, a, a very silly, about 100 minutes. There is an intermission. Yeah, if you're looking for a last gasp of summer laugh fest, I hate to use that phrase, but gosh, I just did. Hmm. I think that Murder Rewrote, with some fine tunes in it, by the way, might just fill the, fill the sweet spot. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, first, I, I in case people have a static on the radio sets, I, I want to... Just to clarify, you said that depth takes yeah. a holiday yeah. with this show, not, not death takes a holiday. No. Yeah. Yeah. There's, death, there's nothing deep here. That, death, you know, this is not a Brechtian exercise that will yeah. require. Death never takes a holiday where you have Vesica Felcher. <laughs> Absolutely uh, not. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so, and, well, there's nothing Shakespearean about this. Though it may be, there may be a little Greek tragedy in the mother-daughter relationship, I'm not sure. But to be sure, this is a jolly musical mashup of Andrew Lansbury and Joan Crawford in a parody which combines Murder, She Wrote and Mommy Dearest. You know, it's clever in several ways, not the least of which is that in real life, Angela Lansbury was widely known as one of the kindest, self-effacing stars you could ever hope to meet, while Joan Crawford wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) But the main spotlight here, we should say, is given to the Lansbury character, played to a T by Britton Gerhardt as the famous murdery mystery writer who has a habit of stumbling upon and solving 
murders wherever she goes. Of course, this show is an unauthorized parody, so the character name, uh, uh, Gary, as you've already pointed out, has been changed from Jessica Fletcher to the ever-so-tasteful Jessica Felcher. <laughs> and yes, indeed, visiting her nephew, she runs into aging Hollywood star Julie Crayfish and her mad-as-a-hatter daughter, Christina. Now, this gives Helena Handbag co-founder David Serta the opportunity to roll out his patented and I might say, among aficionados, greatly cherished Joan Crawford <laughs> impersonation, while Tyler Anthony Smith plays crazy Christina, the daughter. Both of them chew the scenery in mostly delightful, if occasionally shrill, ways. So someone is murdered, and you've already told them who it was, and, and I wouldn't have, but but... But there you go. I think they had it in the press release, <laughs> yeah. though, too, though. So it's not exactly a, not exactly a secret. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, just to compare notes, you and I did not attend the same performance. We did not. Who was the who was the killer? Mine was the the long suffering house uh, housekeeper Carol Ann, played by Helen Handex, stalwart and national treasure. I will not at, at, at Jones. <laughs> so I don't know who okay. it was when you attended. And it's audience selection. So, you know, right. at least so we're right. told. <laughs> Where you're actually allowed to engage your cell phones. They've said it right. very cleverly. Well, it was somebody else. It was one of the other five ah, or six okay. possibilities. So, so they're not lying the to us. They do they're change it every second. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. now, now, the clever authors, we do need to, to, uh, right. to log them because they've kept this pot bubbling. The clever authors are Ed Rutherford, who we know from his work with uh, Black Button Eyes Productions, and composer George Howe. They not only keep the show moving quickly, but they've also come up with ten really pleasing songs. Now, you're not going to go out humming any one of them, but you'll be tapping your toes as their song, and especially if you were, or still are, a Murder, She Wrote fan. You'll enjoy, I think... Bessica's No More Blood and Gore, you know, the <laughs> idea that in Murder, She Wrote, you never actually see the violence, No More Blood and Gore, and her striptease number. Yes, <laughs> she has a striptease number, and I'm not going to say anything more. And Crawford fans will delight when June Crayfish sings HBIC. <laughs> and there's so many clever touches that Lally Extract and the Jabwaki Marionettes, who they've used before, are present in this show as well. Uh, the, the costuming I love, where there's a scene where Joan is in prison, but she's in a very tasteful, you know, black and white striped prison ensemble with lots of bling, you know, because you can't just put Joan Crawford in ordinary prison. Excuse me, June. <laughs> June Crayfish. I'm sorry, June Crayfish. Yeah. And not a former movie star. Don't say that. It will send her into a frenzy, you know. Um, Again, I want to emphasize, I think what, you know, even with some of the dirty jokes and the other things that are in here, there is no way that this is making fun of the underlying material or dismissing it. I think it has got such great affection. And just as I said with the Golden Girls, that's what makes it work. Uh, And there are some, like Britton Gebhardt, who uh, plays, plays Bessica, does have a great set of pipes, and that's what makes it fun to think about her as an Angela Lansbury's fandom. And there are little, you know, sort of in-jokes uh, at one point 
they're talking about past life regression. And Beth goes, oh, I, you know, I once had this dream that I was selling meat pies in a shop in Victorian London, which is clearly a reference to her, you know, debuting the role of Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. So for musical theater aficionados, there's lots of little Easter eggs and, you know, fun little in-jokes right. like that as well. Right. The director is Anthony Whitaker, and he not only keeps the production moving along at a smart pace, but he and his designers have fun with the small proscenium art set with the props, the puppets, which you've already referenced, the wigs, and the makeup as well. Um, Murder Rewrote is fully up to the hell in a handbag standards of pretend pretensions. Of course, it's not really pretentious at all, uh, but pretend pretensions, drag humor with a gay twist, and colorful presentations. Uh, as you've noted, Carrie, it's a bit ribald, as one yeah. expects from Hell in the Handbag. <laughs> Balls it act. Is, it, is, <laughs> it is perfectly suited, as you already have pointed out, for a last end-of-the-summertime kind of fling. Yeah, and I have to say, as I walked out, I did hear a couple of people behind me who I did not know who were saying, gosh, it was just so fun to laugh. And I think that that really, you know, we, we are still, you know, facing so many challenges that um, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that one of the benefits of live performance is bringing people together in a room to just laugh and enjoy, that that is its own social good. I will strongly argue that. And on those grounds alone, I think Murder Rewrote succeeds admirably. Hell in a Handbag's world premiere, Murder Rewrote, continues through September 16th. And uh, we wanted to provide an update on some local theater venues that are either currently under construction or in development. I don't know where we wanted to, to start, but it does seem like there's a lot of projects going on right now. There is. And if, if I may jump in, you know, there are five, potentially six new homes, new physical bricks-and-mortar homes in the work works for some of our off-loop theater companies, both well-established and, and on the large side and also small. And all of these projects, uh, to the best of my knowledge, were first announced before the shutdown. And then there was the shutdown, and they all kind of stood still, unless uh, some mm-hmm. fundraising was going on behind the scenes. But, you know, it, it, it took a chunk out of the timeline and certainly out of the the energy and forward motion of these projects, and now they're all having to step it up again. I did want to say some of these projects actually were newly announced during the shutdown. Uh, Steep Theater lost their home because of the shutdown largely and moved into a new space, and American Blues, which I think is one of the companies we'll talk about, only announced theirs, I think, last spring, as a matter of fact, spring of 2022. But yes, you are correct. There are, uh, let's start with the large one. Let's, I guess, start with Northlight, which, Jonathan, I think you and I can both attest that the artistic director, B.J. Jones's desire to move Northlight back to its Evanston roots has been uh, not, even a, not even a secret. I think this is something B.J. has wanted for a very long time, and now they are starting to work on that. They are moving back to downtown Evanston. Well, Northlight is uh, now 45 years old, which makes it one of the oldest of our off-loop theater companies, and it's not the largest, but it is among probably the the upper six or eight in terms of size. And one of the original co-founders years ago was the greatly beloved and now approaching 100-year-old treasure, Mike Nussbaum, the actor. And uh, the company's had several artistic directors, but BJ has been there the longest. He took over at a time of crisis with the vow that he would not let another Chicago theater company close, and he hasn't. And now he's approaching, I believe, 
his 25th anniversary as artistic director. In any case, Northlight uh, acquired a double lot on Church Street in downtown Evanston in the 1000 block. They have torn down the uh, original one-story building that is there, and uh, but they have not yet begun construction of the new house. So, um, And they have recently received a $2 million grant from the city of Evanston. Uh, I don't recall the total budget they are looking at to complete the project, but we are probably, since they have not yet begun new construction, we are almost certainly looking at probably the 2025 2026 season if things go smoothly and rapidly. Yeah, one thing I find interesting, I know I talked to DJ several years ago, and he had at that time mentioned it would be great to have a second stage. And now it seems like companies, overall, it feels like there's more of a push, not necessarily for the second stage or the smaller black box, but more space for community engagement. I mentioned Steep Theater. I don't know if they lost their space, their old space on Berwyn, directly as a result of the pandemic, but it certainly happened during that time. No, it was sold. The building was sold, which actually turned out to be an advantage. Absolutely. Leasing the space, and all of a sudden, they didn't have to pay rent to keep their space while they were shut down. Right. So they bought an old Christian science reading room down the street. That's in the process of renovation. I think maybe you and I saw one show there when it was still a fairly raw space. I did uh, recently, actually, when I was covering the writer, which was the steep show we talked about last week, talked to Marissa Masella, their new executive director, and she said their plans are, they're, you know, they're going to put in a new roof so they can, you know, accommodate a good lighting grid and all of that. But one of the things they're very committed to, and this is true for Northlight's plans as well, is having some kind of room for community engagement. Now, I think for Steep, they're hoping to recreate what they used to have, the little bar lounge area right off their lobby called the Boxcar. And that is very much a part of their plans for the new building that they have as well. So I think that that's... Yeah, I think that's an interesting development. Certainly, Steppenwolf put in the front bar, and they have lovely new gathering facilities in their new in their new uh, theater in the round. It feels like this is something. It, maybe you can uh, expound upon that, Jonathan. But that theaters, even more than spaces to produce, are looking for spaces to provide community engagement, whether it's classrooms, whether it's just informal places for people to lounge, drink, you know, discuss the shows and really feel like they're not just there to see the show and leave. I think that that's a development that I find quite uh, quite in- intriguing. And I know the Timeline, which is another one of the companies we're talking about, is definitely building that, those kinds of spaces into their new building as well. Timeline will now, when they complete their project, will be in the same neighborhood as Steep, just a few, mm-hmm. blocks, of, a few blocks away. Timeline bought a huge massive walled uh, four-story old cold storage building uh, on Broadway, in the uh, near Broadway and uh, Winnemac, Broadway and Argyle, that area, right next to the popular Sun Hua Chinese restaurant. And they initially announced, this was before the shutdown, a $24 million campaign to purchase the building, renovate it, and also provide something of a uh, of a, of a cushion, an endowment mm-hmm. fund. They have not yet begun construction. They haven't broken, they haven't broken ground. And um, I was at a steep event for uh, subscribers and, and supporters uh, about a month ago or, or maybe five weeks, and they announced that they, the, the price tag has gone up. And so they are in the process of raising additional money before they can begin construction. But they didn't they didn't present this as a worry or a problem. It is a solid organization with a solid board. Um, 
they, um, uh, 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 and I'm not sure where they will be presenting this this first season. Whether it's it looks going to like be they're staying at their space on Wellington. I was looking Wellington, at that. Now, whether space, that space yeah. will stay a theater after Timeline moves out is interesting. This brings up something else. You know, there has been a great uh, decrease in the number of spaces available for rental. As you and I have talked about, Jonathan, stage 773, which was once known as the theater building, is no longer a, you know, a theater venue rental facility. Royal George is going to be torn down and turned into apartments. So there's been this kind of loss of spaces. One company that I think is interesting, that uh, it has an interesting plan, American Blues Theater, which started out as American Blues, was an American theater company, split from American theater company, went back to being American Blues. American Theater Company is now no longer. But American Blues is still holding strong all these years later. They're building a space on North Lincoln, just kind of north of Lincoln Square. And their plan is to have two spaces. Uh, so they're going to be a little bit more similar, it sounds like, to what Raven Theater has. So they'll have a larger proscenium and then a more flexible studio space um, in terms of having space available for rental for other companies. Um, they've been kind of quiet about where they're, where they're moving with that, but I believe, Jonathan, you heard that they are on track to open their production of It's a Wonderful Life, their, their well, radio. That, that's my understanding, yes. And they're in the 5600 block on North Lincoln Avenue, which is kind of a, a, a nice uh, arts district. Um, I don't know what the, the neighborhood name is. I don't know whether that's north central or, or further north, but it is an arts corridor, 5627 North Lincoln. They're, they're working, uh, look, looking at a, a budget of uh, just under $8.5 million to renovate an existing building. And as right. you said, they're going to have two spaces, a 148-seat main theater and a 40-seat black box. And it is my understanding that they intend hope to open their annual Christmas season show, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, in November uh, in that space on Lincoln Avenue. Right. And there are a couple other spaces I'd like to mention. Uh, one is already under renovation, and the other is still waiting to be built, but they, as far as I know, planning to move ahead. This would be Theater Y in North Lawndale, and then Definition Theater in Woodlawn. And I think it's important to mention that these are theaters that are going into areas that have traditionally been underserved with theater venues. Um, so often we hear about companies opening on the north side, right? And there's been a glut, you could argue, of storefront theaters you know, in, in the north side over the years. Theater Y, which is a very community-oriented theater, took over an old storage facility on Cermak, and they've been doing some performances there. The space is still raw, but I got to see their open house. They, have a, they do have a lovely front room um, with high arched windows, and it's a very intimate space where they've been doing Monday night cabarets with spoken word from people like Marvin Tate, music, other kinds of events. And they did do um, one of their walking outdoor shows that also incorporated their new space earlier this summer. My understanding from Definition Theater is that they are moving forward with the idea of building a space in Woodlawn. Their, uh, Tyrone, their artistic director, is still, uh, you know, as far as I know, ra they're raising the money. What I heard anecdotally is that the land that they've acquired was land that was once owned by Lorraine Hansberry's family. Now, I cannot confirm that, but given that Definition has focused so much on stories of black life in very diverse communities, I have to say I would find that to be very, very uh you know, karmically satisfying if that is the case. So I'm happy to right. hear that they're still hoping to move forward with that because, right. you know, definitely Woodlawn deserves an art center, you know, another art center, I should say. Right. And just to, for listeners who may not make the connection, Lorraine Hansberry was a Chicago-born, raised, and educated author of the, of the landmark play, A Raisin in the Sun. Right.
Any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think that, you know, there's, as we've been saying, I think all, all along, the best way to support theater right now is just to go out to theaters, buy tickets, you know, see some of your favorite shows, talk it up with your friends. There have been some hard times, but I think it would be, uh, I think it would be premature to write the obituary for Chicago theater. Some companies are closing up, but some are coming back, and others, as we've just discussed, are, you know, moving, you know, full steam ahead to, at some pace or another with plans for new venues. You know, all of the theaters that we mentioned, that we talked about, Steep Theater, Timeline Theater, American Blues, North Light, and... Uh, Definition. And, and yeah. Right. Uh, all of them are um, not-for-profit companies, and they are all taking tax-deductible donations for their their building funds and projects. So if you, whether it's 10 bucks or 10000 if it's a company you believe in, see if you can dig out a few bucks for them. Well, for ten thousand, you probably get some uh, naming. You can have the uh, Jonathan Abarbanel <laughs> lobby. Maybe a bathroom I, at least. I don't know. <laughs> I've I've always told them that I will give them. You know, any one of these theaters, I'll give them. I'll give them two hundred fifty dollars, and they can name the supply shelf in the custodian's <laughs> Nice. Nice. Thanks for the update there, Gary and Jonathan. We'll see you next week. All right. Absolutely. Thank you, Gary. Thank you both. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the art section. Once again, I'm in trouble with my According to a recent report from the American Library Association, attempted book bans and restrictions at school and public libraries surged in 2022. More than 1,200 challenges were compiled by the association last year. That's nearly double the previous record from 2021, and by far the most since the ALA began keeping data 20 years ago. The troubling trend was the impetus for the Gene Siskel Film Center to highlight attempts to censor cinema over the years. The organization is presenting a new series titled Contraband, starting September 1st. This series will feature 10 films that each have faced some type of opposition, either in the form of bans, forced editing, or protest. Contraband will cover a wide spectrum of controversy, from the religious opposition to Roberto Rossellini's 1948 anthology film L'Amour, to 1987's Robocop, which was edited multiple times to reduce the amount of violence. I caught up with Siskel Film Center Programming Director Rebecca Fons to talk about the series and history of censorship at the movie theater. I remember doing a story on Banned Books Week in like 2008, 2009. I interviewed someone with the American Library Association. The librarian I talked to was very passionate about it, and she brought up some valid points. But I remember in the back of my head thinking, like, this really isn't an issue in 2009. No one is really trying to ban books anymore. Things were pretty calm. So it's been really strange and concerning hearing about all these increased efforts to ban material across the country over the past couple of years. Obviously, there's a, a reason why there is still a banned books week. I'm guessing those increased efforts to ban books and other materials were the inspiration for this new film series. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sort of the same with you. Like the ideas of 
banning books or banning art feels very much of like a, a woebegone time. You know, it, it doesn't really feel like it should we should be talking about it in 2023. So I certainly was inspired by the various calls for bans on books, on poems, on cl- on classes, on subject matter. You know, we are living in a pretty, I want to say Chicago is a bit of a, a safe bastion, you know. I mean, J.B. Pritzker put a ban on bans, you know, recently. So I think contraband, the, the goal is to kind of point out how bans have been part of cinema history as much as they are part of literary history um, and and present, actually. And also, I think the films that we put together actually sort of show sort of the absurdity of these bans or these regulations or these censorship around films in order to provide a clear, you know, a parallel to kind of what's happening now with bans and what's happened in the past with bans. It's like you look to see what, what books have been banned and the reasons for their banning or their regulations or their censorship. And it always feels sort of absurd and maddening, whether you're looking at something in the past or you're looking at what's happening right now. So definitely contraband is a response to the present day, but also a reflection on the history of, of censorship and bans in our country. And I know you have an extensive knowledge of of film and film history, but did you have to do some additional research for this? Yeah, this was a really um, research-heavy series to put together. Um, Some of it I knew, like the the Last Temptation of Christ, I knew, you know, I also had this sort of like in my mind, I was like, I remember this being sort of Mm -hmm. like a, you know, a a lightning rod film. Um, And then certainly some films like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I knew that it was sort of scandalous, you know, and Pink Flamingos is scandalous. So I started with the films that I had just sort of an understanding of scandal, you know, and kind of went from there and then did a deep dive into into the history of bands. I mean, you know, there's there's listicles of them and there's different and there's all the different variations of what has been bans or censors or regulations. So I wanted to kind of provide a something that wasn't just these films were banned, but these films were altered or there was resistance to these films or there were regulations around these films to kind of show the the depth and breadth of what banning or censoring or regulating films can look like. So I, I even widened my scope of what I was considering for the for the lineup. And then, yeah, we don't want to turn this into like a, a film history class, which I know we could easily do or you could teach me. But uh, I know there's this thing that uh, the film industry then at some point tried to regulate itself rather than Congress get involved. And they created the, so the Hayes Code. Yeah. So the Hayes Code, which comes into play in this series, um, especially with the film Scarface, which has great Chicago ties, not the Al Pacino Scarface. It's the 1930s Scarface. But they there were really no regulations but the Hayes Code was created because there were sort of, you know, things were changing. People's perceptions of what was appropriate and was not appropriate was was changing. Um, and so it was this sort of uh, governing body that, and there was this whole period of hate under Hayes Code. Many films were kind of stripped of any sexuality, any scandal, any violence. But then filmmakers found creative ways to be subversively sexual or scandalous or violent um, under the Hayes Code. And then the Hayes Code has sort of evolved out and the Motion Picture Association of America was created. Um, and so there's been a history and, and the MPAA, as well as the Hayes Code, as well as pre-Hayes Code and sort of post-Hayes Code, pre-MPAA, they're all featured in this series because I really did want to show there have been these different attempts at regulating bodies and then there's been moments where the regulating bodies they even evolved because the the regulation that they were they they were enforcing 
was no longer appropriate with the times or there were new kind of calls for freedom of expression or audiences were seeing films from Europe or from international countries and recognizing like there's there are perspective perspectives and um, and stories that are being really stifled through these different regulations. So it's it's an evolution that I think even it contains, you know, evolutions to come because what we consider scandalous or offensive or fill in the blank, it, it continues to change as, as does humanity and as do right. <laughs> human nature, especially in the United States. Yeah, I did go down like a bit of a, a black hole. It was yeah. pretty fascinating. It is fascinating. <laughs> I think I probably did a terrible job explaining it because it is such a black hole. Yeah. And it is like, you know, there's controversies within the controversy even. And there's people who were involved who were connected to Congress and to political mm-hmm. parties, connected to churches. So it was like the, the black hole also contains like octopus tentacles going right. out to all of these different facets of like American life and government and religion. It's it's fascinating. It's yeah. very it's it's a it's a it's a it's a educational you could take a whole class. You could I mean there are PhD theses about Hayes Code and the MPA. So it's like, you know, people are still discovering it and right. exploring it. But I did want to go back to, to Scarface because there's yeah. that local tie. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think yeah. I read in the on the Siskel Center description that was abandoned Chicago because there was a Chicago Film Review Board and that was actually connected to the police department. That's right. The Chicago Film Board um, in the 1930s was an extension of the Chicago Police Department. So there you go. Hence, <laughs> the, the complications are complicated. Um, and Scarface, which is uh, directed by Howard Hawks, it, it, it was like, the, you know, it's this like mobster movie. It's this like Tommy Gunn and dames and all that and the censorship board was worried that it was a really sort of fawning representation of mobsters it was sort of like mobsters are cool you know like they get the girls and they get the guns and they get the 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 booze and everything so they actually forced um changes to make it less um sort of uh, celebratory of mobsters and of gangsters that was their their worry is that it was far too too in favor of them and they changed the title from Scarface to the shame of the nation, which I think is so funny. I mean, that just like, just there, you go from Scarface, which is this sort of like cool kind of like Scarface, like who's that, you know? And then it's like the shame of the nation. It's like, there's no subtlety in this regulation. What's really cool is the way we're presenting it is we're presenting the the, the original director's cut. And then at the end of the film, we have some of the scenes that were reshot to appease the censorship boards. So you can see these sort of like super changed scenes to kind of like, this is what they wanted to have in here. So when it was originally shown, those those edited and and recast and recut versions were what audiences saw. But we'll see the the original director's cut, and then you see these um, these appeasing the censor board right. scenes at the end. Thankfully, the the original cut survived. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's very cool, and it's been recently restored, and it looks beautiful on screen. And and also a lot of these films, it's funny. Like yes, there's violence. Yes, there's sexuality. But all of them are like really tame. I mean, maybe I'm just like I've seen too many movies, but they're all really like they're they're tame. I mean, there's there's sexuality and there's there's violence and there's certainly questions of religion, but none of them. I I think maybe my point is, is that. I didn't want to include any films that are like just shock value. You know, there's no there's nothing that is like straight pornography. We don't have like faces of death in here. Like these are not films that were created to horrify. You know, these are not films that were um, made for sort of that purpose. These are films that were made by our tours and to tell a story. And then censors came in and were like, we actually don't agree. We say no. Or you have to change it a lot to make it palatable for audiences. Right. One of the more contemporary examples that's going to be part of the series, since you already referenced, is the uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, mm-hmm. which I have this like faint memory because I was a pretty little guy when it came out, but I do remember there being a lot of protests. I didn't understand at the time, mm-hmm. 
And so uh, this came out in 1988. The, the opposition to the film was that that was coming from the church. Yeah, the Catholic Church had real issues with the film. Um, in the film, and this is, I don't think this is a spoiler, there's a, again, very tame scene between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, played by Willem Dafoe. Um, and in addition to that scene, which is PG-13 level kind of intimacy, Jesus is sort of questioning his faith. I mean, I think that was another thing that the the Catholic Church had a real problem with. Um, I'm not Catholic, and I didn't consult the Catholic Church when we put this program <laughs> together. But I think that they just, you know, it was basically a story of Jesus kind of wondering if, like, he wanted to be Jesus um, and and showing this relationship with Mary Magdalene um, in, in two different iterations. And so they had huge issues with it. There were protesters outside of Universal Studios. Um, allegedly, uh, Martin Scorsese received death threats. Across the pond in Italy, a cinema was actually set on fire when they were showing it and people were very injured. And what's so funny is, as we find so often, is like a lot of times the the hoopla and the uproar was from people who hadn't actually seen the film. So when you sit down and watch the film, you're you're like, I, I actually saw it for the first time not too long ago. It was just one of those that like was just in my blind spot. And I watched it and I was like, okay, like here we go. Like this this is crazy, right? Like it's just like wall to wall sin. And I was like, actually it's just a lot of monologues about like what does faith mean and and who are we as as religious people or or as led by faith, like questioning God. It's it's a really it's very personal for Martin Scorsese too, as he said. So it's actually just like a really wonderful um jumping off point for conversations about faith and commitment to faith. But the Catholic Church was like, he and Mary Magdalene you know, are intimate together. OMG, like we can't let this pass. So it was a very, very huge moment in censorship, in protests against certain films and against certain stories. And it feels actually that it's the film that feels the most relevant to kind of what's what's going on today. So two things come to mind. First, all that extra attention would make me want to see it more, which is, of course, the the opposite effect the, the protesters are hoping for. And then the second thing, what ended up happening, The Last Temptation of Christ did get a, a wide release, right, with the exception of a few cities? Yeah, so it, it was um, banned. There were a couple cinemas and a couple cities that they just were afraid of the protests. And I think, I mean, rightly so. I mean, people were like adamantly, you know, fervently against it. And so a number of cinemas and a number of cities quote unquote banned the film or they pulled them from their rosters. Um, Universal Studios put out an ad saying like, we support this film. It went on to receive some acclaim and some, you know, nominations. I think Harvey Keitel is in it and he both received a number of nominations and also like a Razzie award, you know, for like oh, wow. for worst, worst performance. So it was received as both like, you know, this auteur vision and also like, you know, sort of a, a, a moment of its times. Harvey Keitel is great in it, though. <laughs> so it, it was released and, and it, I think it is held up in, in Scorsese's filmography as like one of his really sort of underappreciated uh, gems because it is very personal and it is sprawling and, you know, very it's one man's journey. And so it's actually really lovely. And I think it, it, a lot of that got lost in the release and in the in the protests. If you're just joining us, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm chatting with Cisco Film Center Programming Director Rebecca Fons about the Center's upcoming series, Contraband, which shines a light on some movies that caused some controversy when they were first released. The Last Temptation of Christ was, of course, a very serious film with serious opposition. This next film I want to talk about is probably on the opposite side of the spectrum, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. 
isn't very serious, the word that comes to mind is salacious, at least to, to some. My personal connection, I just like happened to stumble across it watching late night cable mm-hmm. probably when I was like 19 and I just thought it was crazy bonkers and I had to tell all my friends about it. And then I was confused by the, the title because I knew there was a famous book called Valley of the Dolls. And so I, would, I thought, is this what the book is about? And then yeah. it, there's this whole other thing. But anyway, this would be an example of uh, the rating system that we're familiar with, though it's mm-hmm. changed since then. This mm-hmm. When it came out, this movie got a, an X rating. Uh, it was, yeah, that's right. So it received an X rating when it was first released. It's now been reclassified as NC-17. Um, and you're, you're totally right. It's, it is sort of a confusing sequel because there was the book Valley of the Dolls and it was made into a very popular movie in the late 60s and Fox released it and it was like, you know, it's, it's all about like innocence lost basically. Um, and then they had, you know, they had uh, juice basically. Fox was like, <laughs> we, let's do another one. And so they hired Russ Meyer who did like Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. He'd done these like pinup movies and these like, you know, sort of softcore they weren't porn. They were just more like films with nude women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Fox hired him to direct it. And it was sort of that was like challenge number one because he was really known as like this B movie director. These were movies that you did not take your children to the movie theater to see that you did not even take your, your wife or your spouse. These are movies you saw kind of on your own. <laughs> um, so that was sort of a, a scandalous step. Our Chicago's own Roger Ebert wrote the screenplay. So there's the great Chicago connection. And then the film is an extension of the original where it's these these women go to L.A. to be part of this like music scene. And of course, it becomes like sex, drugs and rock and roll. And they get innocence lost all over again. But Jacqueline Suzanne, who wrote Valley of the Dolls, she was horrified because it was like, you know, it, it, she felt like it was sort of like bastardizing her text. Uh, Grace Kelly was on the um, the board of Fox. Grace Kelly, I mean, Grace Monaco. We love Grace <laughs> Kelly. And she was like, I'm going to leave the board unless you like, you know, basically denounce this film. And it was released, but it, it, it was like, you know, Valley of the Dolls is sort of iconic. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I think, is it's iconic in a different way, not as a sequel. It actually they actually changed some of the marketing too that was like this is the movie that's not the sequel you know they actually kind of had to lean into the marketing and be like this isn't what you think it is it's not it's connected to valley of the dolls in sort of theme and idea but not in characters or anything like that and what's something that i think so fascinating is disney purchased fox a few years ago you know and they they absorbed the entire fox catalog but uh, they have not put Beyond the Valley of the Dolls on Disney+. Plus. You, what? They, they have made the decision so far. Sin of, it's guilty by omission in this case. They have not embraced the film uh, on Disney+. Plus. They don't want it to be next to, like, you know, Moana or, you know, whatever the bee, Bambi, you know, and then Beyond the Valley of the Dolls can't be right next to each other. Uh, so it's fascinating that it's, you know, it was a lot of it was its lineage, kind of like that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was one thing. And Valley of the Dolls was another, and never the twain could really be in in conjunction with each other. There was sort of an uproar by by even that that connotation. And then that Russ Meyer was this guy who, with him, came this reputation. Yeah, it's crazy that Roger Ebert wrote that script. Yeah. I think I think he said he wrote it in like a day or something. There's some like you know um, old lore about like he sat down and he wrote it in like one day, one week or something. In 1970, when this comes out, if you wanted to see an X-rated movie, could you go to a theater? Well, that's a good question. I I think it probably played a lot of B-movie theaters and some late-night programming. I don't imagine it was at, like, your local, kind of like Nickelodeon. That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how accessible it was 
theatrically. There was uproar around it, and it probably was relegated to like the cinemas where Faster Pussycat would have played and things like that. And you know, men would wear their hats really low to go see it. (laughs) Embarrassed, they don't want to see their neighbors at the movies. One film we were talking about off mic before we, we started recording has probably the, the most interesting opposition story. This is an Italian film that came out in 1948. The Roberto Rossellini film, L'Amour. And it's the one of the first films that we show in the series. And um, R- Rossellini is, you know, a master. He did Rome Open City, and he's just this, like, spectacular Italian director. And L'Amour is interesting because it's sort of a, it's a two-parter film. The first film is a woman, like, waiting for a phone call from a lover it's totally innocuous and the second film the same actress plays a a completely different character completely different story and she believes she's been impregnated by a saint and so you can imagine who was not happy about that and it was you know released in i think it premiered at the venice film festival it was released in italy there everyone was like this is great and then it made its way to the u.s and it was literally stopped at the border um for being you know for having issues of like sexuality and and religion and the distributor here in the U.S. A gentleman, his last name is Burston. He sued because he he wasn't able to show it in theaters. It was it was it was like locked up and he couldn't show it. And he took his um, lawsuit all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in I think 1952, unanimously agreed that film was a form of expression and it was protected by the First Amendment. So that is the first time in the U.S. that a a, a court, a, a body, a, a, a legal body has said film is a protected form of speech and you can't censor it how this film is being censored. And so the film was released for American audiences to see. So it's like, you know, because of that, we had this huge shift in an understanding of what film was, that it wasn't just entertainment. It's also a form of expression. And these stories are, you know, deserve to be told. Um, so it's it's really fascinating. I tried hard to not include films or instances when films were banned in in countries not in the U.S. Um, you asked me about like my research. You know, I immediately got into the weeds with films that have been banned in China or Iran or Iraq, and that gets far more complicated mm-hmm. culturally. So I wanted to stay away from that. So there are international titles, there are foreign films within this series, but they're included because once they came to the U.S., censorship or regulations or bans, they were met with with, with censorships or regulations or bans. Um, on our soil. So we also have a, a Czech film um, called Ecstasy, uh, which stars a very young Hedy Lamarr. She wasn't even Hedy Lamarr yet. Um, it's it's this beautiful art film. Uh, and in it, uh, you see what is pretty obviously her having an orgasm, but you just see her face and she's just in ecstasy. And that's sort of it. Um, and it's her wanting just to find like sexual pleasure in a very chaste way. <laughs> and um, it was totally received well in, in international markets, but here in the US, people were like clutching their pearls. You know, they were like, oh my gosh. So again, there are films that had no issues in other countries, but again, contraband, we were very specific to look just at films that had been impacted here in the US. Sex, violence, mm-hmm. and then religious connotation would be the things that these fall under. Yeah, I think almost all of them. And I also tried not to make it too sex stuff. <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, this is all sex stuff. So I was like, well, it's sex and violence stuff. It's sex and, uh, and you know, and also you have a film like um, Pink Flamingos, which is, there's sexuality in it and sexual 
conversations and content, but it's also this sort of shock factor. It, it's very grotesque, but also it's, John, it's directed by John Waters. It's this really amazing subversive kind of culture shock. And so it is, there's sexuality in it. There's some violence, but overall it's just sort of a shock show. And that's a film that actually was embraced right away by audiences, um, but there were cities around the country that wouldn't show it. And and John Waters says he, it's even still banned in a town called Hicksville, New York. So, um, so that's maybe one that actually got the most embrace from audiences. And it isn't necessarily like sexuality or religion or violence. It's just sort of the shock of it all mm-hmm. uh, provided enough... Uh, you know, terror for people to to turn away or to say that they wouldn't show the film in their cinema or their town. And so at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how there is this all of a sudden this new push to ban material. Have some of those efforts crossed over into the film world? I was trying to think of some recent examples and I couldn't really come up with anything. You know, every so often there will be some controversy surrounding a, a movie, but I can't think of a, a serious attempt to ban something from a theater. Yeah, there there haven't been that I can think of right now either. I think, you know, because the MPA exists, there's always sort of this like avenue with which like the rating has been deemed. And so it's sort of like clear for takeoff. But there was just a film that came out this year, a really wonderful film called Passages, directed by Ira Sachs. And it's a film about sort of like a love triangle, for lack of a better kind of term. Term, and it received an NC-17 rating because there's a number of sex scenes in it that are graphic, but like very appropriate within the context of the film and graphic with like a lowercase g. They're really it's totally fine. Um, and so it received a hot, you know, a more um, challenging rating. And so, I mean, you could argue that that is an example of a film kind of getting a short end of the stick because an NC-17 rating may p- keep some people away. I mean, we include Robocop in the contraband series because it was threatened with an NC-17 rating if it if Paul Verhoeven didn't make a bunch of cuts to the violence because if a film gets an NC-17 rating it's it's it could make less money I mean I think you're right it's like I kind of want to go see the NC-17 stuff but you know some people might be like that's too much for me and it kind of hurts the film's chances to be a success so that's an example of like a regulation body kind of deeming a film in a certain way that could affect its its life lifespan and its lifetime and there was a film a number of years ago called Bully Gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the director um, documentary about kids being bullied. And it was, you know, really harrowing and, and emotional and heartbreaking. And it was given an R rating by the MPAA. And the director did a big campaign. And he was like, that means that the teenagers can't see this movie. I mean, they can sneak into the movie theater. But like that means that they will be potentially ID'd and they can't see this movie, which is literally about teenagers. And it's it's meant to show teenagers the the really the the consequences of bullying. And if I remember correctly, it did go it get, did get a PG thirteen rating. But you know that was one where it was like you're actually hurting the point of the film by making it harder for kids to see this movie. So I think it's it's always sort of a battle and a consideration for filmmakers and for the MPA to think about what a rating will do for a film. And I always think like, you know, movies come out and I'm like, oh, what's that going to, if it's going to be rated R, you know, that means, oh, great. Like it's going to be better. <laughs> I think that, you know, like, a, like when like a Batman movie came out or something and it was rated R and I was like, ah, yes, that means we're actually going to get a story here rather than this weird kind of like right. less compelling, maybe less visceral representation of, you know, action. I don't know. Maybe I'm putting, that's my perception on it. But I do feel like sometimes you see something comes out and it's PG or PG-13. You're like, oh man, it's going to be totally like diluted and like 
pretty lame. I'm gonna be a bunch of kids in the theater. So, so I think we're always kind of dealing with it on a lower level. It doesn't feel as as like immediate and dangerous as like the book bans do. So contraband uh, takes place September 1st through the 11th, and probably a, a rare opportunity to see some of these films on the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one really good example of that too is Promises, Promises, which is a film that includes nude Jane Mansfield. She was the first mainstream star to to go nude, quote unquote, go nude. And we are actually showing the film on celluloid on 35 millimeter super cut. It's super cut up. It's the censored version. But we have a digital version of the first seven minutes. We're going to show you the first seven minutes where the majority of the nudity occurs. And then you're going to see the the celluloid print. And it's like you can't see it anywhere else like that. So to see it on the big screen and to have this sort of, we've done our best to like Frankenstein monster it back to life. Um, so yes, these are rare films, many of them on 35 millimeter and, and films that really do deserve to be seen on the big screen in truly in the way that they were intended to be seen. Rebecca, thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That was Rebecca Fons. She's the director of programming at the Gene Siskel Film Center. The Contraband film series starts Friday, September 1st and continues through Monday, September 11th. Go to siskelfilmcenter.org for all the details. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy this lovely weather. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 